0: Okay, so today we are going over Luke chapter 3. Um, for those that just came in, we do have extra handouts with pens. If not, then we can definitely print more. Um, so at the outset, if it seems like I'm going to, uh, to surface level, it's because there's a lot in chapter 3. Uh, when I first had the notes, you had six pages. I carved it down to
1: three.
0: So um, if I could get two volunteers to read, I'll read the first chunk, but I will need two volunteers to read the second two. Thank you. Dennis, thank you. So I will read the first section, which is one and two. I get a big chunk today. Um, If you could read verses three through 20 when I ask, and then Dennis if you could finish out the chapter. So Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Echuria and Tracontus, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, The word of the Lord came upon John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. There's a lot in these two verses. So, first, right at the outset, we're told that Tiberius Caesar was uh, the Caesar, was Roman emperor. He is uh, after Caesar Augustus, so it's a different one than when Jesus was born, not unusual. The next thing we're told is that Pilate is governor of Judea. This is interesting. This is odd. And I'll touch on that in just a moment. Because typically, the Romans did not install Romans as governors. They wanted a a local, an ethnic person to, to govern the area. Pilate was neither. He was a Roman. So at this point in time, Israel was broken into four sections. If you flip over your notes to the very back, I put a map there that shows what areas are ruled by whom. At the time. So Herod the Great is now dead because Jesus came back, or uh, Joseph brought his family back to Nazareth after Herod the Great died. So he had, uh, Herod the Great had three sons, each of whom were given a quarter, which if you uh, enjoy etymology, words, tetra being four, you might wonder, okay, well, four, and there's only three sons. What's, what's going on? Well, that would be because the last part was given to Lysanias, who is not a son of Herod the Great. So the three sons, being uh, Philip, Archelaus, and Antipas, were all given a quarter, and Lysanias was given the last. However, Archelaus was actually so mean or vile, he was so cruel, he did so many bad things, that the Judeans sent a petition to Caesar to say, please give us a Roman governor. That's interesting. Tiberius refused, and then they gave him another petition with more evidence, and Archelaus was actually deposed and exiled, and Pontius Pilate was appointed into his area. So that's how we get a Roman. So it's interesting that the Judeans themselves asked for a Roman governor. Also of note, very interesting, there's two high priests mentioned. So if you just think, according to Exodus and Leviticus, how many high priests were there supposed to be at the time? One. Because they're the high priest. So this is very unusual. Since Exodus and Leviticus say there's only one, and here's what happened. Annas was appointed in 6 AD by Quirinius, the same governor of Syria as when Jesus was born. But then the, uh, the governor of the time, of the whole area, Valerius Gratus actually removed Annas from that position. I did a little bit of digging, and I didn't get a, <clears throat> excuse me a, a, much of a reason why. Um, but he was re- removed. But true to form for Annas, he got his son-in-law installed instead, Caiaphas. So at this time, Caiaphas was technically high priest. And if we cast our minds forward in time, three years or so, during the trial of Jesus, where was Jesus brought first? The house of Annas. And then he was tried before the Sanhedrin with Caiaphas. So Annas is still holding many political uh, reigns. So Neopatism was definitely alive and well in Palestine at the time. Caiaphas served as high priest until about 36 AD. So why am I throwing all these facts at you? We're going over Luke and haven't even gotten to verse 3 yet. Because all of these facts point to one central key fact. The events recorded in Luke chapter 3 and all of Luke are historically verifiable. You can go to Josephus. You can go to Philo. You can go to Eusebius. You can go to the records of the Roman Empire, which are still readable, and you will find names, dates. These events happened. This is just as historically reliable as as going down to the Parker County archives and seeing who owned your land 100 years ago. This shows that what is recorded in Luke is historically verifiable to the point where Simon Greenleaf, who is the founder of the modern <laughs> Rules of Evidence in court, stated that the Gospel of Luke is court admissible in the court of law. That is the, the standard to which Luke is writing. Which is great for us because somebody can say, well, you can't prove it. Actually, we can. Luke is a historically reliable historical document. Okay. Verses
1: 3 through 20, please. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism or repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level waves, and in all flesh, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herod, Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison.
0: Thank you. So there's a lot there. A good chunk of the chapter. So... If we think about the last couple lessons of Luke, the period of time that we're in right now has been called by some the, the silent period. So how many years actually had gone by since a prophet of the Lord had been heard? 400 years. That's a very long time. So when, when John is, is called out by God to, and, and sent he preaches with the force of a prophet of the Lord, right? So in in, in looking at the commentaries, one or two noted that his message was very negative. Basically saying, you are about to die. This was something of a mark for a true prophet of the Lord. If we think back to the days in Israel when, um, when the kings had many, many prophets, especially when they were going out to war, I believe it was Ahab said, you know, here's the prophets, and they all said, Oh, you will definitely win. Well, with these with these horns of iron, you will destroy your enemies. And the king of Judah says, Was there no other prophet? And there's one, Elijah, who says, No, you're gonna die. You'll fail. True, true prophets of the Lord typically have a bit of a negative message. So, John the Baptist, who is a voice crying in the wilderness, much like Elijah from four to 600 years beforehand was a negative voice. So John the Baptist fulfilled the prophetic words spoken in Isaiah 40, verses three through five. And I didn't write it because they're right there in the Bible. So he preached the message of repentance, of baptism to repentance, which we will touch on in a moment in case there is any uh, confusion there but his message was received by at least interest. We're told that crowds came out. And as we, as we keep looking, we find out that tax collectors, soldiers, some Roman, some uh, local legionnaires who were not Romans yet, they would be see, receive Roman citizenship upon completion of their, uh, their term, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Rulers of the Jewish people came out to listen, as well as the normal people. So there was a response. John was a fiery preacher who did not shy away from the facts. If you think about fire and brimstone, you might think about John the Baptist. So he, he did several things. He called them vipers. I don't know about you, but typically when you want to compliment somebody or encourage them, you don't call them a snake. Rather the opposite. Um, In in this area, the vipers are not terribly large. They're (coughs) about two feet long, but they're very poisonous. They like to stretch themselves out and sun themselves. And if you're not careful, you'll pick one up thinking it's a stick going to act. The very thing happened to the Apostle Paul. He decimated their cultural presupposition of salvation by genetics. Simply put, he said, just because you're a Jew born of the line of the Jews, doesn't mean you're saved. That was a big statement. Because the Pharisees especially said, we will be the epitome of perfection according to the law, and we will be saved. They were the Jer- Jewish Puritans originally. By this time, they were no longer that. They had definitely um, made very large burdens upon which they laid, they laid it upon the necks of people and lifted not a finger to help but the scribes knew the Torah. They knew the whole, the whole Jewish scriptures very, very well. They were the ones who wrote. They knew how to write. So he basically said, just because you're a Jew does not mean you'll be saved. He said, time was short. Judgment is at hand. So he says this in two different ways. He just says it a bit allegorically or parabolically. But the one that is very interesting is the axe to the root of the tree analogy. So have any of you ever felled a tree? couple
2: times.
0: (laughs) At what stage do you get the axe out and start chopping away at the roots? At the beginning, in the middle, or at the end, generally? At the very end. The axe is already laid at the roots. The tree is felled. It's been limbed. It's been bucked. It's probably already cut up into sections. You're about to throw it in the fire. You're just coming back for the last of it. That is the stage that John the Baptist is talking about. It's not the day of the Lord is approaching. It is right now, coming very, very soon. Watch out. Repent. And then he talks about the winnowing fork. I had to look that up. I wasn't sure exactly what that was. But generally, after the grain or the wheat had been reaped, it was laid flat, and then a threshing threshing sledge, very heavy, was drawn over it many, many times. And then they got the winnowing fork, and they just tossed it all up in the air the grain would fall, the chaff would blow away. Even the smallest zephyr would blow away the chaff. So if he's coming with a winnowing fork, he's fairly close to the end, right? So the chaff, the stubble, he's about to burn. So we have two fire-type analogies here. And that's where the consequences come in. If you are caught unawares, if you are the chaff rather than the wheat, fire is coming, and it's an unquenchable fire. So basically to sum it all up, John was telling them in no uncertain terms that the day is coming when the Lord would judge the the living and the dead and he warned them that they could not depend on their birthright as Jews to save them. Here there is a message for us. We may not be ethnic Israel, but we cannot trust in our going to church every day or going to church every week. We cannot trust in Well, we read our Bible and we said a prayer when we were five. I was five. That is not in what we are trusting. If we are trusting in something we do or did, we are not trusting in something salvific. We are trusting in what we have done, our works. You must trust in Christ, in his work, just as John was calling them to trust in the finished work of Messiah to come. Very shortly to come, in his case. So there's a warning for us. This is not dry history. This means something for us here and now, today. So what did John mean? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What's that mean? Well, James says something of the kind in chapter 2. That's one. Okay, I scared myself for a second. James says in chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, meaning that faith without works, save him? If someone says you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So that's 14 and then skipping to 18 for, uh, to, to make the point. So what James is saying, as when Joel preached through James, it is not the works that save you. It is the faith evidenced by the works. To quote a very well-known theologian by the name of Luther, faith without works is dead. So why did John say, bear fruits in keeping me through repentance? Well, as I had said, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees had come to the Jordan. They were known very well for their works. They wore the phylacteries day, every day, maybe even a night. They kept every single statute, all 613 commandments, plus the ones that they had created for themselves in the intertestamental period. They did not go more than 100 paces from home on the Sabbath. They did not do anything on the Sabbath except that which was necessary. But they're the ones that, G- that John is calling vipers. So what, what would this mean? Their works were based in what? Their own self-righteousness. I will do these things and I will be saved. <coughs> John is saying, your works must be grounded in something else. They came to get fire insurance. They came just in case they were wrong. Well, I'm going to get this baptism, and it's just, it's just getting in the water, which in a moment we'll find out just what a big deal that was. It's just, you know, getting dumped, and then I'm good, right? No, not at all. They wanted to be sure, so they came to hear the message. I mean, this was a prophet of the Lord, it would seem. They hadn't heard of one in 400 years. Their profession was not one of faith, but one of doubt. Doubt in the promises. Because if they truly believed the promises of God, had faith in the promises that God would keep, they would not have come here. So this evidence is they had doubt. John was essentially calling their bluff and saying, prove your profession by your actions. And then he preempted their argument by stripping them of their self-importance as children of Abraham. He said, if God needed sons of Abraham, he could raise them from the stones on the ground. John had been in the wilderness. He was very familiar with stones, rocks, boulders, gravel, sand, all the myriad kinds. God did not need them. That's what he's saying. God made Adam from the dust of the ground. Do you really think you're that special? So having heard John lay out the law, so to speak, the crowd responded with a question. The very same question that was asked after the sermon in Acts by Peter. Not Peter asked the question, Peter gave the sermon, and the people asked, what then shall we do? John's answer was, basically, love your neighbor. If you have two cloaks, give someone who needs needs one. If somebody's hungry, give them food. So you may be wondering, so is John saying, follow the great commandment and that's what's going to earn your salvation? You know, you do you do the, the right works, not the wrong works, and that's when you when you're good? No, not at all. What he is saying is the fruits bearing with repentance are loving your neighbor. Just like Jesus said the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. But what was the first? The primary commandment with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind strength. Yeah. So tax collectors came to him and said, What what do we what do we do then? So Matthew was a tax collector, but he hadn't been called yet. So who were these tax collectors? They were Jews who had volunteered to help the Romans. Not a popular job. Many of them were Really, they were swindlers. Because Rome was constantly changing their tax rates. They would tell the tax collectors, okay, this period of time, this is how much you need to give us per person. So people actually had to trust the tax collector to tell them how much they had to pay. So the tax collector could easily say, well, you need to give me two denarii over what was actually it, and i just keep the two denarii. And many of them did that, which is why they were so hated. But really, could the people of Israel afford not to trust the tax collectors? No. Because if you don't pay the taxes, and they weren't actually telling a lie, then you're the one that's hauled away. And your family's left destitute. So, they generally just paid up. John is telling them, do not extort money. Extort money. but But take the lawful tax only. Only charge what Rome says you have to charge. And they ask, well, then how do they make a living? They get a commission based on how much they get. So they collect the proper amount. They get a percentage of that amount for the own pay. So all they have to do is get the exact amount of denarii for their, their district, and they, live, they get a, a wage based on that. They don't have to get anything from the people. But many did because greed. Love of money is the root of all evil. Soldiers came and were... That's what they were supposed to do. So these soldiers were likely locals. Rome did not usually send legionnaires from Italy to their vast empire. They recruited. One of the major benefits of being a legionnaire was you get Roman citizenship after you're done, as well as having one of the finest military educations known at the time. So they were told to be content with their pay, which was very good for the day. It was a very good wage and to protect the innocent and not intimidate the helpless. These legionnaires were also something of a police force. So to put it in in, in terms of what we understand, those police officers who roam around Weatherford and Parker County, they may look very auspicious and um, intimidating to some. Many police departments have days where little children are told to go talk to the police to say these are helpful people. Because I don't know about you, but if you have a 6'4 gentleman in body armor with I don't know how much stuff on their belt, they might be a little intimidating. These soldiers were very much the same. And many would actually use their status as police force to intimidate the populace to get things. There were actually some that basically were uh, mob bosses. You pay me so much every period of time and we won't raid you. Pay protection money. John is telling him, "Don't do that. You're paid well. Be content with your wage. Do your job. Wield the sword against the evildoer, not the righteous, or not the um, the innocent." <laughs> Ordinary people were told to basically treat others as image bearers of God, sharing with those in need. That would make sense. John was so forceful in his preaching. It was such a big deal that he came that a lot of people said, are you the Messiah? They had been waiting for centuries for a Messiah to come. John point blank says, I'm not him. The one coming after me is mightier. I use water. He will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. He is so high and mighty, not putting the two together as a a, uh, derogatory word, but he is so above me that I can't even unloose his sandal. So that was a big, big statement because the Jewish rabbis that had a following, there was a saying, rabbis have disciples to do every function of a slave except untie their sandal. Even that was so low that a disciple couldn't do it. And John is saying, I am so unworthy. I can do that. So understand the caste system of the Hindus. He's saying, I'm below the untouchables. I'm nothing. That's a big deal. For the sake of time, I think I'm going to have to skip over Matthew 13 and Psalm 1, but I do encourage you to take a look. We then hear that John was imprisoned by Herod for issuing prophetic criticism against the wickedness of the government. What is profet- prophetic criticism, you may ask? That is the function of the prophet, and some would argue the church today to call the state to be the state, not call the state to be the church, not call the church to be the state, to call the state to be the state. Wield the sword against the against the wicked, preserve order, protect the innocent. And that's it. He was John was calling out Herod for marrying Herodias, who, depending on who you look, depending on who you read, you will find that Herodias was his brother's wife. That doesn't seem like such a big deal to us right now. His brother was still alive. They'd each divorced their their wives, which doesn't seem like such a big deal today. But there are some that, when you dive into the the Levitic Code, this was incest. This was his sister by marriage so digging really deep this was a huge deal and John was as a prophet he was calling out the government and saying you can't do that and we're told that Herod did a lot of other things but John was only doing what many prophets in the past had done Isaiah, (laughs) Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel many others Nathan calling out King David Daniel called the Babylonian, the Medes, and the Persians to follow God. Isaiah and Jeremiah. Their lives were threatened because they did this. Prophetic criticism is never popular. Okay. Baptism. I know everybody's favorite subject. What did John mean, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? So this next paragraph is very, very key because this has gotten a lot of people into trouble this does not mean that sins are forgiven because of the baptism. It does mean that sins are forgiven by grace through the faith that is evidenced by the baptism. This is the same baptism we practice here at GCC. In doing so, when when the elders ask three questions, what the person is doing, is they are acknowledging they're standing before a holy God. They're trusting in Christ's work alone. So that's what baptism is to us. What was it to the Jews? Or was it created when Jesus was baptized or when John started doing it? No, it was not. Baptism for the Jews was a big deal because Jews didn't get baptized. Gentiles did. A Gentile proselyte who wanted to become a Jew had to do three things. Make a public profession, sense. Get circumcised if they're male. Makes sense. And be baptized. Because they, the Gentile, were ritually unclean. They had to take a bath, in essence. So when John is calling these people, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, to be baptized, he's saying, you are no better than an unclean Gentile. That's a big deal. So John was actually asking them to admit that they were unclean before God. Remember, these are the Pharisees who strained their drinking water just in case there was a gnat in there because gnats were unclean. So then, you may be wondering, why was Jesus baptized? Cover that in just one moment. Dennis, please.
2: Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, and the heavens were opened up, the Holy Spirit descended on him like in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Continue on, brother. Please. Jesus, whenever he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the Son of Matthias. Well, close to that. The son of Amos. The son of Nahum. The son of Els. There we go. The son of Nagai. The son of Maith. The son of Madahias. That's probably better. The son of Samine. The son of Joseph. The son of Jodah. The son of Joann, The son of Resa. The son of Zerubbabel. The son of. Shiltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Cozum, the son of Elmadon, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mattat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Iliakim, the son of Meli, the son of Menab, the son of There's that word again, Metat. The son of Nathan, the son of David, there we that's a good one. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amimadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nabor, the son of Surub, the son of Reu. The son of Peleg, the son of Ever, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arks, Arphat, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel – the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Thank you, brother. School. If I had a group of tenth graders that made me mad, I'd make them copy that chapter <laughs> Alright.
0: So thank you, Dennis.
2: <laughs> I actually made write numbers. No kidding. Of, there you go. <laughs>
0: so John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Why? That's an excellent question. And, unfortunately, we don't have to wonder. Because if we just shift to a different gospel, Jesus actually gives us the answer. Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So Jesus did this because to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? That's a conversation that we can definitely have. But for the moment, it is, it, all we need to say is Jesus had to do it. But this reversal of roles should really draw us attention. It really did for John. Jesus did this for a very important reason, because he had to, or because he was told to do it by, by the Father. His active obedience, as distinguished from his passive obedience. His passive obedience being he did not struggle when he was tried, beaten, crucified, and died. His act of obedience is his doing what he was supposed to do. He fulfilled the law. He was baptized. So when he was baptized, the heavens opened, and we have a theophany, a visible manifestation of God. And rather uncommonly, we have a manifestation of all three. So, if you have friends that say, where's the Trinity in the Bible? Luke chapter 3. It's one of a few. The Father speaks. The Son prays. Let's not miss that. He was praying. And the Spirit descends. If we notice in verse 22, here's a bit of a a barb against some, possibly people of the Gnostic persuasion. The Holy Spirit descends in bodily form. It doesn't say appearing as a dove, but it says as a dove. So I wouldn't recommend it, but you could have touched it and it would have been a fluffy. If you've ever touched a bird. It was actually a physical manifestation. The phrase spoken by the Father is repeated in Luke chapter 9 during the Transfiguration. So this baptism and the resultant theophany Marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. From this time, right after this, he's taken to the to the wilderness, which we will cover probably next week. And then he begins his preaching. So his public ministry has now begun. And now we come to the genealogy. Very little time left. So, why the genealogy? Why is it there? It's there for a very specific purpose. It's there because it means something to the people that read it. So in a moment, I'll read a, a bit of an anecdote about why genealogies are important because maybe some of you some of you really like genealogies. I'm not terribly interested about my genealogy. It doesn't make much of a difference to me. But it did to the Jews. And here we I must also say, if you are comparing Matthew, because that has a genealogy too, and Luke, why are they different? They're pretty much the same up to about David. And then they start being different. Why? You go to Joseph, one generation back, and it's actually got two different fathers. Why? Is there error in the Bible? No. It's different because this is a different genealogy. Legally speaking, how many parents did Jesus have? Matthew is the genealogy of Joseph, showing that Jesus, by birthright, was of the line of Judah, directly descended from David. He could be, and indeed is, the prophesied son of David who would rule on the throne forever. Matthew wrote to Jews. Luke did not. Luke wrote to a Gentile audience. So, why is it important well, because he wrote to the Gentiles and you can get into why, why are there four Gospels for a different reason. Happy to talk about it, just not right now. We don't have time. But this genealogy in Luke chapter three is the genealogy of Mary. We are very, we're pretty sure. Does it explicitly state that? No. Can you dig up people who say, well, if you go to the Talmud and, uh, and the, the commentary... Haggagah, is there a reference? I don't know. I'm not good enough in the Hebrew yet. Some people say yes, some people say no. But what we do know is the Bible is is inspired. We also know that if you go into the Greek, I said I do some Greek, just now What's on the board. If you go into the Greek, every single name except Joseph has a definitive pronoun. What we'd say is the. So in the Hebrew, it actually says Joseph. Of the healing. Of the Mathat. There is no the Joseph. There's, a, there's a, a word missing. So what this is not saying is that Jesus was born bodily from Joseph. That, that one word is very, very important. It is saying that Joseph was bodily born of Heli, and was, who was bodily born of Mathat. It also says, as was supposed. So if we go back to the birth story, was Mary stoned? No. So what would have had happened for that to happen for that to occur? Joseph would have had to basically say, okay, and not say anything else. If he had done what he could have done, he could have had her stoned, but he didn't. So now everybody's going to think, well, they're betrothed, so... Yeah, it wasn't right, but they're going to get married. That's what the Levitical Psalms said was supposed to happen. So they're you know, kind of shunned, but that's about it. Everybody thought Joseph was his father. Go a little bit further. When Jesus goes to Capernaum, what do they say? Is this not Jesus, son of Joseph? Are his brothers and sisters not among us? So that's, the, that's all the Greek I'm going to throw at you. But it's a very important omission that theologically makes a very big deal. So, if you also compare Matthew 1 versus Luke 3, you'll also notice that Matthew stops at David. Luke goes on to Adam, and indeed further. He goes back to creation. Why might that be? Because uh, because Luke was writing to the Gentiles. In this genealogy, it brings it all the way back to creation. Luke is founding this and saying, this is important for anybody descended from Adam. Can anybody raise their hand if they are not descended from Adam? We're all from Adam. So this gospel applies to everybody, all of mankind. Why is that important? Because Jesus was the second Adam. Now. Okay, my little anecdote, then I'll be done. This was huge to me. This is why I copied it. So, the Wycliffe Bible translators, they translate the Bible in different languages. Uh, a Bible translator went to Papua New Guinea and started ma- translating Matthew. Well, he said, well, I don't, want to, I don't want to get too bogged down with these people in Matthew chapter 1. I don't need the genealogy. So he started with Luke chapter 2. Well, he translated all of Matthew except for the first chapter. And he called the, all the men together. And, they said, and he said, okay, so I got this one last chapter. And how do, I, how do I translate begat? Well, they had a bit of conversation. They figured out, okay, what's begat mean? Here's how we would say that in our language. So he translated Matthew 1. And they started reading them reading it, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat, after six begats, he could tell that the translators, the men who were helping him were so excited. He asked, well, what's the big deal? They said, so you mean these were real people? Yeah. So they actually, they descended. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what we do. We keep track of our genealogies. We can track our ancestors all the way back. We thought this was just a white man's story. These weren't real people for us now here today. You mean Abraham was a real man? He was really a guy? Well, yeah, that's what I've been trying to tell you. We didn't know that. Now we believe you. The genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 was the key that unlocked the gospel for these people. They didn't understand that, the, that Jesus in Matthew was a real man who really lived until they had a list of okay, so his dad was this dad and, his dad and his dad and his dad and his dad and his dad. Well, this is a real person. We could actually go back and maybe find the genealogy. He really ha- he really existed. So the genealogies are here for a reason. They matter. Any questions? Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the genealogy. We thank you that Jesus' work is efficacious for us here today. We thank you that he, as the second Adam, undid the effects of the curse brought about by the first Adam. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that everything in it is useful. We pray that you would take these truths, which I have hopefully conveyed, and plant them deep in us that they would bring forth great fruit. Pray also that you would speed us on to corporate worship. That we would continue to glorify you in the service in this day and every day hereafter. We ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen.